Today's episode of Lone Star Lawyers on the Varsity Podcast Network is brought to you by Varsity Search. Varsity Search builds great teams by connecting lawyers in Texas with career opportunities at small and boutique law firms. So if you're thinking of making a move or your law firm is looking to hire, please go to varsitysearch.com and book a time to visit right into my calendar. Varsity Search, building great teams. Hey everyone, Daniel Hare back with you on Lone Star Lawyers. Before we get started, I want to remind you, if you haven't had a chance to listen yet, that we did drop a new Movie Verdicts episode this last week. And so if you are at all interested, I encourage you to go check it out. Robert Callahan is back with me and we break down the Pelican Brief. And if it's been a while since you've seen that or you've never seen it, it is a early 90s John Grisham adaptation. He had a big run of uh, legal thriller novels, continues to write them, but really had a big run in the 90s. And a lot of those became movies, uh, including The Firm and A Time to Kill. We've done Runaway Jury. There's more out there for sure. And we'll probably get around to all of them at one time or another. But this, uh, The Pelican Brief was an early 90s movie with Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts, kind of at the early stages of their uh, ascension. And uh, it's just a fun thriller. And we had fun with it uh, on the show. And so uh, I encourage you to check it out. It's in your feed right now. So uh, go over and do that. Uh, also, before we get going here, I uh, wanted to let you know about a few of the uh, opportunities that we're currently searching for. So in Dallas, we've got a lot going on in Dallas right now. Multiple business and commercial litigation positions, one of which uh, with more of a commercial bankruptcy uh, focus. We also have a uh, litigation and a corporate and M&A attorney position with a larger firm, mid-sized firm uh, available. Those are in Austin in, uh, I'm sorry, those are in Dallas. In Austin, we have uh, are continuing to search for both a family law attorney and a special education attorney. In Tarrant County, uh, we're looking uh, as well as for a family lawyer and a corporate and real estate attorney, and then in Houston, looking for a personal injury attorney. And so if any of those are of interest to you, or maybe someone you know, please get in touch with me, Daniel at varsitysearch.com. All right, speaking of personal injury in Houston, that is where we are today, where our guest is Mary Green. And Mary recently joined the personal injury firm of Pierce Skrbonik after nearly eight years as an associate and then partner at another Houston PI firm. Mary's practice focuses on medical malpractice and general personal injury law, and she's been a Texas Super Lawyers rising star each of the past two years. All right, with that, let's hop into our conversation with Mary Green on today's Monday Mentors episode of Lone Star Lawyers. Mary Green joins us right now. Mary, thanks so much for taking time to come on the show with us. You bet. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Well, I'm excited to have you and very excited to see your Star Wars and Lego background behind you. For people that are <laughs> listening to this, you can't see it. It's really awesome. And uh, I, I, I think I, I was going to ask her to pan the camera to show me all the other Legos, but <laughs> I don't know if we'll get to that. But It would take... It would take too long. There's too many in the house. <laughs> but if I, I'll grab a video clip so people could see it, or at least a still shot so people put it up on social so people could see it. Um, okay, so uh, Mary, start off by telling us about uh, your practice, what you do, your firm, all that fun stuff. Sure. Um, so I'm with Pierce Scribonic, um, and I've recently started at this position. Um, my history is in medical malpractice law, and previously I was with a firm for 
um, eight years that only did medical malpractice. And so I, uh, have brought over some med mal cases, uh, to Pierce Scribonic, but also I'm excited about, um, exploring other types of plaintiff's PI and, and other types of uh, personal injury cases. So. Yeah, that's exciting. Uh, tell us about what's the latest and what's going on within the med mal area, since that's been your primary focus for all this time. Uh, what, uh, you know, we hear a lot in the different, especially on the kind of news side, political side of kind of and uh, legal press too, about what's happening in med mal and in Texas and plaintiff side. So tell us about what the kind of the latest is. Uh, what are you thinking most about when it comes to that? Yeah, no, I mean, the, the biggest changes in MedMal are, have been in, you know, tort reform measures have been in place for a while now right. since 2003. Right. Um, the mo, the more recent changes or kind of potential changes, we're not quite sure how it's all going to pan out, are related to COVID. Uh, okay. there was a bill that was just recently signed by, uh, Governor Abbott, I think last month. It, it might have been the month before, but it was, um, Senate Bill 6, uh, that relates to some, um, uh, immunity that hospitals and healthcare providers potentially can get related to treatment of COVID patients. Okay. Patients, yeah, yeah, and so it's not quite clear how that bill is going to affect just regular med mal. You know, cases like that I'm handling that we're not suing over people mm-hmm. getting COVID, but they're in a hospital that's treating COVID patients. Does that impact these potential defenses? It's not quite clear, but that that's kind of something that's it'll have to kind of pan out, um, since it's a retroactive statute. So yeah. that's going to impact all the cases, you know, that I, <laughs> that I signed on last year. So that'll be uh, a fun little legal, uh, <laughs> right. Puzzle for sure. Uh, speaking of COVID and we were talking offline just before we started recording about just getting used to practicing by zoom basically for the last year. Uh, what has that experience been like for you and what are you seeing now as we're starting to kind of come out of that, uh, hopefully phase and, and getting into a post pandemic type of world. Are you seeing a transition in the way practice is happening and the way courts are handling things? What are you seeing right now? And for context, people listening later, it's June 30th when we're talking right now. Right. Yeah. So I only do litigation. And so there was every single one of my cases were impacted by COVID. Um, and really for all of, you know, from March for the rest of 2020 last year, almost all the cases, um, you know, we're at a standstill mm-hmm. for a little while, for a month or two, why people were just kind of trying to figure out, well, how long is this going to last? What are we going to do? Um, but slowly but surely, everybody, courts and, you know, all the attorneys I work with had to kind of get on board, you know, that this isn't going anytime soon, yeah. going away anytime soon. So we need to figure out how to do things remotely um, by, you know, video conferencing. And it actually, things progressed better than I thought they would. You know, I was still able to work up cases, take depositions, attend hearings. I didn't have any Zoom trials. I know uh, a a lot of my um, uh, friends and colleagues, for example, like who are in family law or criminal law, they can't just not do trials for a year. All of my trials, we we just got continuances until 2021. So thankfully, I didn't have to deal with that aspect. Right. Um, but but I mean, we're we're slowly but surely starting to transition out of that. Um, I actually had an in person trial earlier this month, okay, and great. it was it was wild how normal it felt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> so that's that was great. good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was the? Uh, I've we've had a couple of uh, uh, plaintiffs folks on in the past, and uh, I'm curious your experience and how that. Uh, how COVID over the last year impacted uh, the motivation to on either side of the 
uh, of the case parties to move towards a settlement. Uh, in some ways, not having a trial pending or looming uh, can kind of take the urgency off, I imagine. And then others may just want to, hey, I don't want to wait for who knows how long we're going to have to wait to get this thing done. Should I just settle it? So how did that kind of play out for you and your, your work and your clients? Yeah, no, exactly what you said. I saw both sides of it. Okay. You know, for some of them, you know, it was a case that we had mediation set and we were able to transition it to do a conference call and we're able still to still get it settled or do Zoom mediations and still have things go forward. But it definitely it was one extreme or the other for a while there to where it's like, oh, well, our we're getting a continuance on the trial date. So we have another year to kind of kick this down the road. But then a lot of other adjusters, I think, were like, we have enough problems, like, let's just try to get things off our plate. And so that that was uh, a little, little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think I've uh, asked this before. How, how did you get into or how did, did you always know you wanted to do plaintiff side work? How did that come about? And uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I was always very interested um, since my first torts class, honestly, my first uh, quarter at Baylor yeah. in medical malpractice. Yeah. It just, for whatever reason, it really piqued my interest. Um, and then I learned the bad news that nobody does this anymore. <laughs> and it, it's just in Texas, right. this really isn't viable. Right. And so, so then you switch uh, to workers' comp. No, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Everything else that's been statued out. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and so, thankfully, I was I was able to to talk to some uh, to some uh, professors at Baylor about it and get some connections and put in touch with a plaintiff's firm that only did MedMal, which is very very rare in right. Texas. Even though we do handle some cases in in other states, uh, been pro hoc'd in into those other states, yeah. but. Um, I mean, when I was, uh, after I passed the bar, I applied for some defense firms, um, general insurance. I just wanted, you know, those, the student loan bills were, were coming due soon. And so, you know, I, I, my heart was always kind of in plaintiff's work, but I, I wasn't gonna, um, I was kind of lucky, honestly, that I, that I was paired, um, with a, a firm that did the type of law that I was interested in. And that's why I stuck with that firm. That's awesome. That, that whole time. That's great. Yeah. Um, when I talk with, uh, candidates, lawyers that, uh, that are thinking about making lateral moves. Uh, it's interesting. I was just having this conversation literally this morning, um, with someone where, uh, and I don't know if it's just sort of the season that we're in or just it's, a uh, coincidence or whatever, but, um, I've been talking with a decent number of folks that are on the defense side, um, who are wanting to make the jump over to the plaintiff side. And, uh, so I'm curious from your standpoint, um, obviously you've been on the plaintiff side the whole time. So some of this is you you don't have that familiarity, but I, I think you'd be a good person to ask about this. Like, what do you think from someone who's on the defense side, thinking about making that transition over the plaintiff side, what are some things they need to be thinking about? Um, one from the standpoint of, uh, is this really what you want to do? Or do you think it's just what you want to do? <laughs> like, um, and then secondly, like, what are the things that they need to either emphasize or get up to speed on or adapt to, to make that successful transition? Sure. I, I think having work on the, the defense side, at least in under the personal injury umbrella, which is really all I've ever done. Um, having that perspective from the defense side can be very helpful. Yeah. Um, and I would see that as a plus, you know, if I was, was looking to hire a new candidate, whether it's on a, the lateral side or on an associate level too. Yeah. Um, just because, especially if it was more of a, a, of a lateral position, they really understand 
the process and what's going through, you know, on the other side of things so yeah. that, that they can better educate not only the clients on the plaintiff side, but also be able to understand how they can move a case forward um, in ways that, you know, for example, like, a, you know, communication with an adjuster and having to deal with an adjuster. That's something that even though I've never done defense work, I often will ask the defense lawyers, I'm like, hey, what is what is your adjuster like? You know, I'm not just going to send a demand out of the blue, yeah. you know, what will help things towards a resolution? And so having the perspective of how things work on the other side because they've done it, I think is very helpful. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, though, um, there's a lot more planning and pushing on the plaintiff side. And I think that would be, if, if I were coming from the defense mm-hmm. side, that was something that might be hard. You know, you can't be reactionary. Right. In other words, in a, at a plaintiff's firm, you have to be pushing and planning forward. You can't just kind of wait around for something to happen. So that might be more challenging, but not, you know, not, not something yeah. that's impossible to learn by any means. What about the, one of the reasons that I hear quite a bit from people that are thinking about doing something like that is, uh, you know, the idea of, I, I, I got to get away from the billable hour and, and, and get, <laughs> is that, yep. uh, you know, talk about that a little bit, because I, I feel like sometimes, uh, while that's true in maybe, uh, technical terms, uh, I'm not sure it's actually true in the way things play out necessarily the way they might think. So talk about what that's like in terms of your time, your work, your hours and, and, and all of that and, and how someone transitioning from a defense firm, you know, would maybe walk into a situation like that. Sure. So never having done defense work, thankfully, I've never had to deal with the dreaded billables <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> that, that I hear about on the other side. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think that it, it's, it's kind of a change in mindset because it's not like, oh, have I met my billables for the week and then I'm done. Right. It's like, okay, what needs to be done on this case to move it forward or to move it through whatever stage we're in? And so it's just kind of more about changing your perspective I would think as opposed to kind of checking a box, okay, well, this is all the client will pay for. And yeah. so that's all the work I can do on it. It's like, well, no, actually more work or maybe less work is necessary, right. you know, depending on what the issue is. Right. Um, it, it, yeah. So I feel like that can be, um, you have a little bit more flexibility, but that also requires more organization and forethought on your part when you're on the, the plaintiff side. That makes sense. Yeah. No, thanks for that. Um, okay. So, as you think back and look back at your first maybe year or two in practice, what's something that you learned then that is an important part still today of how you practice? The first thing that comes to mind is is organization. I don't know. That's my personality. <laughs> and it really has <laughs> yeah. served me well. Sure. Um, I, I just, you know... When I started out, I had, you know, I worked with directly with a partner and I had, I don't know, 30 cases I was working on. It was a very small amount and, and that felt so overwhelming. But then I continued to add to that as I got experience. But that staying organized, um, aspect always, you know, is, is, a, is kind of my secret to my success <laughs> in yeah. a lot of ways. Just, just finding a way to stay organized that works for you, which I know that not everybody has that flexibility because a lot of firms have a set, oh, you you know, whether it's needles or another program to, to be able to organize things. But for example, like I have Evernote that I, it helps me stay organized with my different cases. And so it's kind of, am I making, you know, notes in two places? Yes, but it works for me. And so, so kind of figuring out that it's not about uh, just being able to remember all of it. It's, it's finding a system 
that, that works practically for you to be able to stay on top of your to do's and, and your planning on all that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, is that something that you, uh, you've always kind of had that, uh, in you, you said it sounded like it was kind of part of just your personality and stuff like that. Um, but, or is that yeah. something you had to either learn later or you've seen people do things certain ways and thought that's, that's good for me. I, I'm going to try to emulate that. It's a little bit of both, but I, I'm definitely, a, you know, the type A personality stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I, that, that helped with, you know, I always have, have been very organized, taking a lot of notes because I don't, I can't remember it all. And so just having a lot of documentation, not only for other members of my team, but for me to remember, I think, uh, helps a lot, but, um, but finding a, in, in, as far as working on a team, whether it's, you know, when I have associate attorneys or paralegal or just staff you're working with, it's not just about you staying organized. It's also about making sure that it's a system that other people can stay on top of. And, And that, that's, I had to learn a little bit more of to make sure that it was a way that I was communicating with my staff in a way that was, was productive. And that's not, uh, that didn't necessarily come as easily to me. That was more of a learned behavior, but that also depends on, you know, the personality types, um, uh, of the, the folks that you're working with too. Sure. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice you received as a young lawyer, maybe from a partner or a mentor or something like that, that you have hung on to, or that's been important for you? Yeah, there's one, actually the first partner that I worked with, um, some advice that, that they gave me that was very helpful, um, which sounds kind of trite at first, but I mean, the, the piece of advice was like, find a way that works for you and then, and and do that. In other words, it's not one size fits all. So yes, there's, you know, you need to know the law and you need to, to follow the law. But as far as, you know, <laughs> 45 days uh, beyond, doesn't work for me. I think I'm going to do 90 days instead. Is that where? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, setting that aside, right. but it's like, you know, the goal is to, you know, from a plaintiff's personal injury standpoint, at least the, re- the goal is to obtain a client recovery. Right. Um, you know, because we're working on contingency fee, so we're not going to get a recovery. Yeah. Our expenses aren't going to come back and our client's not going to get anything. And so the end goal generally is either get a recovery through uh, you know, uh, a settlement outside of court or through a jury trial. Yeah. But his, his advice to me though, that partner that I, that I mentioned was that, you know, this is how I do it, but that's not how you have to do it. As long as you're, you know, obviously following hmm. the law and understand the law, the end goal and you're reaching the same end goal, but it's not that it's a one size fits all. Yeah. And that's really stuck with me because it really isn't, it depends on what the, so many different factors, you know, having to do with the client's personality, the issues in the case, opposing counsel, but just to have like a rigid one size fits all doesn't work for this. And so, uh, that, that really has always stuck with me. Um, and I've passed that on to other associates about like, Hey, this is my process, but it doesn't have to be yours as long as this is the end goal that we're on the same page about. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really, really good. When you think about some of the associates that you've either worked with or that you've, uh, led over the years, what's something that a young associate has done or can do to stand out to you in a positive way? So I, my teaching style or my training style is, uh, not going to be the case for everybody, but mine is very, I explain a lot of things. I take the extra time to say the how and why of, of why I do something. Or, or, you know, it's, I'm not doing it this way just because I want to, there's a reason for it. There's a method to the madness, in other words. And I've had some associates who have really listened to that and internalized that. And then I can see that. Hmm. Um, and I think that makes them better at their job. And so, 
obviously listen, you, you know, but if, <laughs> if, you know, you're, uh, from an associate's perspective, if the, you know, whether it's a partner or a higher level associate or, or whoever you're working with, if they're not explaining the how and why ask, because that I think sets you apart because you're not just doing a task because you've been told to do it and check it off your to-do list. You're wanting to look deeper and to understand the process. Yeah. And I think that makes a better associate, but I think it also, and at least in my mind, associates that have shown that, taken that initiative and shown that curiosity um, are the ones that typically do better because they are more interested and understand it better. Yeah. And I, I, it's funny because I actually think that uh, maybe not for everybody, but I think for a decent amount of people, that uh, that advice almost sounds counterintuitive in some ways because I think sometimes people will think, you know, hey, I get an assignment. The thing I need to do is don't ask any questions, go and get it done as quickly and as, you know, efficiently as I can and bring it back. And that will show that I uh, did exactly what I was told and I got it right back to them and, and all that. Um, and so to hear, hear you talk about it like that, it's like that, you know, taking that extra time to ask some follow-up questions to get the how and the why, and then you know, is, is, is maybe not what they would think first. So, um, and do you feel like that's something that is partner dependent or is, uh, something that they just need to kind of figure out, uh, or is more universal kind of, you know, um, I, I, I want to make sure that, that they're hearing, cause I think you're right. A hundred percent. I think like, that, like that's generally speaking, right. Um, and so, but I want to make sure like, you know, people listening aren't confused or just like questioning, okay, wait, I, I'm not just supposed to go like kind of do what I'm told. And that doesn't show that I'm wanting to do what I'm told like, you know, kind of thing. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I think it, um, context is always important <laughs> for this type of situation. <laughs> sure. And I would say it is, it is partner specific too. You know, you, you have to have that rapport and you also have to make sure that you're asking the types of questions when, when it's a good time, because sometimes there's a deadline and there's not enough time to ask about it. And it is just, this needs to get done and you can show your your worth and um, uh, set yourself apart by getting something done timely and well. But I think when the time and place allows for it to be able to say, hey, I noticed we did it this way. Is there any particular reason for that? Or I noticed we consulted with this type of expert. Is that because of X, Y, Z? Or could you explain that more to me? Um, yeah. Picking, you know, when there's a, a deadline for an MSJ to get filed by 5 p.m. and you're coming in at 4.45, that's not the best time, <laughs> right. obviously, to, to talk right. about that. But but they're picking the right time and place and the right subject for that with someone that um, uh, will, will recognize that initiative and also take the time to explain it to you, I think, can can be helpful not only for the associate's personal growth, but also setting them aside apart from others to say, oh, well, they really seem to be getting it. They're asking questions that show that they're, they're not just mindlessly doing things. They're thinking about it. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I, I think sometimes they think, you know, by asking questions, somehow I'm showing that I, I don't know as much as I should, or that uh, I haven't learned something yet that I should have already learned. Um, and, and I think that, again, context matters and specifics matter. But in most cases, uh, you know, I, I feel like that lawyers that take the time to ask additional questions and, and learn more about the process and learn more about why they're doing something that that's rarely frowned upon and rarely is someone thought less of because they're asking questions like that. Um, even though it may feel like it, cause you're maybe feeling vulnerable, like you're asking something, maybe you should know the answer to, is this a dumb question, that kind of thing. But it goes back to, 
I mean, all the way back to your school days, like you're always encouraged to ask questions. Like you're always, there's a chance that you're going to sound stupid when you say it, but it's it's just, you got to get past that, right? Right. Yeah, definitely. And and I I think it also is a good chance to show what you've already done to try to, to figure out the, the answer, you you know, to where it's not like you have to start at square one. You can, you can say, we designated this expert. I went and, you know, looked at their CV and looked at, you know, so I, I saw that they had this background. Is that why we decided to go with them or what other, you know, like yeah. that's just kind of an example that come, comes to mind, but sure. it's not that you have to start at square one and, and say, I don't know anything about this. Explain it. There is a time and place for that sometimes, mm-hmm. but that's another way to make yourself stand out um, as an associate, especially is to say, well, I already looked into this A, B, and C. What are the next steps and why? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, how about on the flip side? What's something that uh, either is uh, maybe pet peeve is not the right word or phrase, but but something that bothers you or something that you try to you know uh, counsel out of <laughs> your associates if you see them doing something? Yeah, um, I mean, I feel like I've had some associates that when I do take the time and to explain the how and why who aren't listening to that or who don't really pay attention to that. And that bothers me because then I feel like I've wasted my time. Sure. It's like, I'm not explaining this to you to hear myself talk. I'm, I'm doing it for your own benefit so you can be better at your job. And so if you're not appreciating that, that shows me that they're not really invested or interested in it. And if, if they're not, that's fine. <laughs> they just might not be a good fit for the firm. <laughs> right. Um, right. So, I mean, that that's a little bit more specific to how I interact with, with my, my associates. Right. But more generally, I, I don't know. I, I've had some associates that, that have the take the whole like fake it till you make it uh, yeah. <laughs> kind of truism, but take that to an extreme mm. to where they're like, I know everything. And I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> and that's okay. Right. Yeah. You know, so, so to, to have that confidence is important, but that can sometimes go a little, that can be a little bit too extreme to where you're like, you don't know and that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that got, yeah, it goes to what we were saying earlier about asking questions. And, and so, yeah, definitely. Um, so I, re- I realized that it is likely a little bit different in the uh, plaintiff's world than in most other uh, practice areas. But when we talk about um, the idea of uh, lawyers starting to build their own either book of business or their own client list or uh, relationships that could lead to business uh, in, the, in, the, um, in their legal practice, um, what are some of your thoughts there on things that young lawyers especially should be thinking about? Um, you know, they're still probably trying to become good lawyers first and foremost at this point. Um, but as they start thinking about, you know, uh, building those relationships that could lead to, to business, what are some of the things that you think are important? Yeah, no, I, uh, building your book of business, I know less about that just because that's not, yeah. you know, on the plaintiff side, I don't have repeat clients or anything like that. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think that maintaining, um, you know, a, a connection with other people in the field, whether they specialize in your same area or just, you know, people that are alums or with friends of yours that have a, a background um, that they would need a lawyer like yourself or, you know, um, keeping those connections with people, I think is really, really helpful because you never know what could come from that. Hmm. Because so much in the, the legal business is, is a word of mouth recommendation. Right. You know, I have, um, I feel like a lot of people that, um, 
are sent to me by other lawyers say, you know, oh, I was working on this person's divorce. And then they said, hey, you know, I also had this issue with, you know, a doctor or my cousin had this. Do you know, do you do that type of law? Do you know someone that does that type of law? And right. so if you are in an area where you, you are, you have a niche market, being able to, to, to get the word out to colleagues, friends, other people in, you know, whether it's on a business side or they're also in, in the legal market, being kind of that go-to person as, oh, I do know somebody that does, you know, maritime cases or medical malpractice. Let me put you in touch with them. Just kind of having that, that connection is good, especially on the plaintiff side. If you have an agreement with your employer to, you know, get a, a referral fee, you know, sure. a certain percentage of the attorney's fees, not only is that great for you, but then that you're demonstrating value to the firm you're working for that you can bring in business uh, on your own. And then that makes you a more valuable asset for them. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you kind of differentiated between kind of building the book and then building the referral base, because I do think that while the, the book maybe, uh, yeah, is not applicable to you and applicable more to other areas, but the referral base I think is applicable to almost every lawyer in the sense that we all do different things and we all can recommend people to the, for the things that we don't do. And so, yeah, for, for people to know who you are and what you do, um, and have trust and faith that they can send someone to you and that it won't <laughs> come back on them later is important, right? Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, that can, you can do that in so many different ways. It can be the traditional kind of networking that people think of. That's not my favorite thing to do. I kind of have to make myself do that just because <laughs> that's not always, you know, my talking to a, a group of people that I don't really know yeah. is, is not always my favorite thing to do. Right. Um, but there's a lot of other ways to do that too. I mean, like for example, there's a, uh, you know, I don't really do anything on Facebook anymore, but I have, there's a Facebook group of, of Baylor alumni lawyers to where they're from all different walks of life. And they'll say, Hey, you know, I used it recently to where I had a client that, that was like, Hey, I need a probate lawyer just to draft up a basic will. And I was able to go to that and got recommendations for a couple people. It was very quick. Yep. And then, yeah, and so, I mean, to have something like that, whether it's online, whether it's in person, whether it's through your school or um, any other, um, you know, way that you can connect with other people based on your specific locale um, or your common interests, that, that's a, a potential way to, to, um, to be able to, to foster that kind of development. Yeah. So, no, that's great. Uh, okay, so when you are in the process of, hiring an associate. Um, what are maybe one or two key things that you're looking to see on a resume before deciding, Hey, this is someone we would want to talk to or bring in an interview. Um, well, uh, I think it's really important to tailor your resume to the specific job you're applying to. Mm -hmm. Um, be one, because then that shows me, oh, this associate isn't just, or this person isn't just sending out their resume to a hundred different law firms and just wants a job anywhere. Yeah. Um, they've taken the time and thought about, okay, well, what from my background, you know, have I never, I've never done medical malpractice, but I got a lot of trial experience when I was at the district attorney. Let me put that first and let me highlight how, what types of skills I would need at this new job that I have developed at the old job. Yeah. Because especially for younger associates, um, you know, they don't have as much experience and, and the, the, the hiring individuals understand that. But to be able to highlight, you know, even if it was on a basis before law school or like on a volunteer basis, to be able to outline things like um, good communication skills, um, 
knowing how to manage and organize a lot of information or people, uh, thing, things like that to be able to highlight, you know, this is the job that I'm applying for, but this is how I cultivated some of those, um, those skills in previous positions. Um, I, that helps a candidate stand out. And then of course, I mean, if they have experience in that field previously, that always makes them stand out, <laughs> but you don't always have that. And, and that, that's okay. But to tailor it to, to, um, catch the eye, uh, of someone reviewing a resume. Um, yeah. Really I, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I've actually been talking to several folks recently and we've been going through this process, especially for people that have had, you know, maybe, uh, some type of either by multiple jobs doing different things, or maybe in their current job, they do some transactional work, some litigation, maybe some litigation or some like administrative law or whatever. Um, and that, you know, if you just kind of have one resume that kind of highlights all of those experiences, and then you go to uh, a plaintiff's firm and say, I want to come do this, it, it's hard for the employer to be able to uh, dissect that and figure out, okay, is this really what they want to do or how does this translate? Um, and so we've been going through the process of, no, okay, if, uh, you play, apply to a litigation firm, let's highlight those litigation experiences, highlight those skills. It's not that we necessarily have to cut everything you've ever done transactionally, but we certainly want to, you know, take it to maybe to the bottom of the stack of the list of experiences and not maybe include all the transactional stuff that you've done. Uh, cause it's going to be confusing. Um, and exactly right. I mean, people want to know this is where you want to be and this is what you want to do and you don't want to kind of mess with the messaging there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, I think that that can be a process that's helpful too for an applicant. I know sometimes you just have to, you know, a job is a job and sometimes that's what you, you need. You can't hold out for that dream job. But at the same time, you know, if you're trying to tweak your resume and you're finding it difficult to, you know, to be able to put together experience or, um, or, or something similar for the job you're applying for to kind of take a pause and be like, well, is this a position I really do want to apply to? Yeah. Yeah. can be helpful for them. <laughs> for sure. And then when you, uh, so if they get past that initial stage and you bring them in for an interview, what are a couple of things that you look for in the interview, uh, positively or negatively to decide whether or not to move forward with them? Sure. So, so there's, there are kind of two things that come to mind. The first is, I think about how would this person um, interact with clients, with opposing counsel, or with a judge based on how they're talking to me. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of something that it's not as as much substantively what we're talking about, but just kind of like how how would this person? Because those are the scenarios where they're going to be in, and so if and then that's hard to kind of prepare for, but but you know that's kind of the biggest thing that's in in my mind is you know this person only got an interview in person because they were qualified or they seemed promising. Well, how are they? You know, how would they interact on a professional level right. um, in these other situations? Um, that's really important. Um, but but another aspect is that I don't think gets talked about enough in in these kind of scenarios is do I want to work with this person? Like I'm going to see this person every day for at least eight hours. <laughs> yeah. Like are, do they? Are they a personality and that would fit with the other people that work there? If, if I'm hiring someone to work directly with, do they have just the kind of demeanor that would work well with mine? Um, and again, that's kind of impossible to prepare for yeah. in an interview because you don't know yet. But, uh, but interviewees, I, I didn't really appreciate this when I was initially applying for jobs because I just, again, I just needed any job. And so I was a little bit more desperate. I was, you know, <laughs> I wasn't going to hold out for the, for the dream job necessarily. Um, but you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. And so you have to think about that too, as an interviewee, are these people that I want to, I'm going to be spending a lot of time with these people. Are these people that I'm going to want to spend this time of time with and that are going to help me with 
you know, my, my professional growth. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that, that personality or that culture isn't a good fit for you and that's okay. Um, I think that's true on both sides of, of the person that I'm interviewing and the person that is interviewing. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, super well said. I mean, I, and, and, you know, I think sometimes people, uh, because they're, you know, once they get into the mode of, I am going in and interviewing for this job, like, you know, I think sometimes we, uh, get into the mindset of, okay, so a success here is getting an offer. Um, and, and, and it's understandable. And of course, if it's a place that you learn, as you learn more, you do want to get an offer. You want to work there. That's true. But at the same time, like you're saying, you're interviewing them as much as they are you, the, the success is really learning as much as you can about the opportunity, the people and figuring out whether it's a good fit, um, and communicating to them, your interest, your personality, your uh, the way that you work uh, in an authentic way that's true, that's not kind of made up just for the interview so that everyone can have all the information and make good decisions about whether to move forward or not. And hopefully that's into an offer and an acceptance, but maybe the best result is that you don't, <laughs> you know, to, definitely. Right? So, um, you know, uh, and, but that can be hard because you, you, I think for most of us, like we would rather get the offer and then turn it down than not get the offer. <laughs> so like, you know, <laughs> for, sure. just for our own self-esteem, I know I, I would, Totally cop to that. Like that would be more my mode for sure. Um, but, and that, and that can play into it too, because I think sometimes, you know, uh, obviously at the beginning of the, the, the firm is the one that has the kind of first leverage of making the offer. And, um, you know, so kind of more in the position of, of, of the power arrangement there until the offer gets made. And then, um, so you can kind of think through strategically how to, uh, broadcast your interviewing of the other of the firm um, at different stages of the process and for sure can do more of that once you have an offer in hand and can make sure if it's the right thing for you um, definitely gives you a better negotiating position for sure yeah yeah definitely but but I think too uh, the last piece on this that I wanted to ask you about because I think sometimes when we talk about this like fit thing and is this someone that we want to work with and all of that, um, you know, and I, I know this isn't what you're saying, but I know sometimes I read this, I see this and hear this from people that does that just mean the firm is just looking for homogenous, like, you know, like everybody thinks the same, uh, does the same things, hangs out together and best friends, like all that. Um, you know, and I don't think in most cases that's what, uh, people mean when they say they're looking for the right fit. So talk a little about that. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Um, cause I mean, if you, you can get along well with your coworkers, like that's obviously, at least for me, that, that helps yeah. with my own mental health and yeah. <laughs> makes things smoother. But it's, you know, you're interviewing for a job. You're not interviewing for a group of new best friends and that's right. okay. Yeah. Uh, but it's just, and, and honestly, I don't know that I would want to work for, for a place or, or at a, with a group of people where it all is just homogenous and, and everybody kind of thinks the same. I, I don't think that that's, that's helpful. Um, but more so, I don't know, just kind of knowing what you're getting into because yeah. how, how people interact and how people work with one another varies so much firm to firm. And, and again, I've always worked in a, a small firm setting. And so right. that is kind of unique. I know that a lot of the, the bigger, um, not just big law, but larger law firms, it, you know, what are the group that I'm working with? What's the, you know, the, the people that are going to be more immediate? How are they, how do they relate with one another? Yeah. Um, it, does that work well for my personality and how I work? Um, it's just, it's important to think about. For sure. No, absolutely. 
All right. So we're uh, near the end of our time here. And so I'm going to ask you um, if there's anything we haven't talked about yet uh, or anything you'd like to end on uh, to leave uh, with our lawyers before we get to our rapid fire questions to uh, finish out uh, the the time here. So um, anything that we haven't either talked about yet or maybe you'd want to uh, leave uh, with them or something we want to go deeper in uh, before we finish up? Um, one thing that, that had... Um that had come to mind, um, and this is really true for on the plaintiff side of things. I, I don't know. So remember the the human side of it. Yeah, that's something that I didn't really think about the until I was actually practicing. Mm-hmm. So the types of clients that I'm dealing with on the plaintiff side, like I said, they're not repeat clients. They're going through something that is probably one of the worst things they'll ever deal with. Yeah, personally or within their family. Yeah, and so to understand that people grieve in different ways. And obviously you're not their therapist, but to kind of understand where people are coming from and how they're processing that, I think is something that they don't teach in law school. And that is really important and can make you a better lawyer and a better advocate to be able to uh, relate to your clients, but then also instill that trust with your clients that you know what you're doing. And when push comes to shove, and you're giving them advice that, that you think they should take, they're, they're more willing to trust you, but you're also willing to give them better advice because you've understood that process better. Yeah, I think that's always a great reminder. And and sometimes I think we try to categorize that into, you know, folks that are working in plaintiff's work or in, in family law or in criminal defense. And certainly it's super personal and emotional in those settings. But look, if you're doing business litigation, it's a small business owner and it's their business on the line. It's the same thing. You know, it can be, it can kind of extend out beyond, I think, the areas that we typically think of when we talk about that level of kind of counseling and emotional pieces and things like that. So I think that's great to always keep that in mind that, uh, you know, uh, with some exceptions, maybe that most people that are having to deal with lawyers and especially a litigation setting are not doing it out of (laughs) the joy of their heart. (laughs) So probably, (laughs) you know, not enjoying every moment of it the way we might be if we're all geared up, ready to fight and in, in, in trial or whatever we're ready to do. So that's great to, to leave on for sure. All right. Our rapid fire questions. Are you ready? One word, one phrase, and uh, we'll get, we'll knock these out. All right. Ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> all right. Name one trait or characteristic that you most want to see in an associate. Hardworking. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what habit has been key to your success? Organization. Oh yeah, yeah. You said that earlier. <laughs> like we That's talked right. about uh, your yeah. favorite. Uh, oh, you, we already did this too. Your favorite app or productivity tool. Yep, I already, I already dropped Evernote. Evernote's I'm not, there. Not sponsored, no. but the, I'm going to mention them again. They're great. <laughs> <laughs> These seeped into your subconscious as you were talking to yep. the other part. Um, all right, what would you list first in the interest section of your resume? Um. Like me personally, or yeah, you're so if you're, you're writing up your resume, you're sending it out, you got an interest section. What are you putting first? I'm putting travel first. Travel, awesome, it's a good conversation starter. There you go, yeah, for sure. Uh, and then lastly, your favorite legal movie, I gotta go classic uh, to kill a mockingbird or my my cousin Vinny, maybe those are very different movies, but <laughs> it's, it's, that's kind of a tie, <laughs> both excellent, yes, very different. Um, and uh, that's great. In fact, we've done 
uh, both of those on the podcast in our deep dives uh, with uh, Robert Callahan and myself. Uh, uh, Kill Mockingbird is the most recent one we did. We did My Cousin Vinny at the very beginning. So we've hit both of them because they're both excellent legal movies. So good picks for sure. Uh, all right, Mary, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show with us. I appreciate it and wish you and your firm, your new firm, uh, all the best. All right. Thanks very much. I enjoyed getting to chat with you. All right. My thanks again to Mary Green for joining us on the show today. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider doing two things for me? Would you subscribe so you don't miss an episode? And would you rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen? And if you have suggestions or thoughts about the show, or if I could help you in any way, including with uh, connecting you to any of the opportunities that I mentioned at the top of the show, please email me, daniel at varsitysearch.com. Also, don't forget uh, to check out our Movie Verdicts episode on the Pelican Brief. It's a lot of fun, and I uh, am confident that you will enjoy it. All right, that's it for today's episode of Lone Star Lawyers. Thanks again so much to each of you for listening. I'm Daniel Hare with Varsity Search, and we'll talk with you next time. Thank you.